Welcome to the Red Light Report, your number one source for all things red light therapy, where you will learn how to optimize your health, wellness, and longevity with the power of photobiomodulation. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Belkowski. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Red Light Report, emphasis on light, especially today, uh, because we have a very, very special guest on. Uh, it is Dr. Jacob Israel Lieberman, and with his discoveries in the fields of light, vision, and consciousness, they've been enthusiastically endorsed by luminaries in the fields of health, science, and spirituality, from Deepak Chopra to Bruce Lipton to Eckhart Tolle. His newest book, Luminous Life, How the Science of Light Unlocks the Art of Living, reveals how light guides our every step so we may fulfill our reason for being. And uh, like uh, Jacob and I were talking just before we started recording this podcast, one of my mentors, I would say, for getting me on the path to light and how it affects health and wellness was Dr. Jack Cruz. And while Dr. Jack Cruz is a very good educator on, on many things, light included, he is a type of person that will tell you a laundry list of books to go read so you can learn from yourself and learn from the source. And out of the uh, handful of authors and educators he suggested, one of the top ones was indeed Dr. Jacob Lieberman and his first book, which was copyrighted in 91. It's called Light Medicine of the Future, which is probably as as important now as it was you know, when it was written 30 years ago, really opened my eyes to the power and the healing power of light. And then his most recent book, Luminous Life, which was published a couple of years ago, goes more in depth to the quantum aspect, the the mental spirituality aspect of light as well. So we're going to dive into a lot of information. And that was a long-winded way of saying, Jacob, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Mike. It's uh, it's a pleasure to be here with you today. And, and I look forward to a wonderful conversation just about something that's of interest to both of us and hopefully your, your listeners as well. Absolutely. And I'm sure you get this a lot, but I think we're all going to be enlightened with, with, with this conversation. So before we get started with your knowledge and expertise in light in the many ways that affects us, just give us a, a brief background on, on your life path, how you came to be so involved with light and what kind of triggered that path uh, for you. Well, that goes back 50 years. In 1971, while I was going through my medical training, and I was entering third year of my training, so I was beginning to work with, with patients, and uh, a young child was brought to me that had a condition called amblyopia, or lazy eye, where one eye didn't see clearly and you couldn't improve it with lenses or prisms and and yet there was no disease process so you didn't know what was going on i had no idea how to work with such a child one of the clinic doctors said to me try this little thing which was a a yellow filter that was developed by a doctor in alabama who said that this yellow filter would stimulate a certain layer of the retinal tissue. I didn't know any better. And I gave the child this yellow filter to just look at a light bulb through this yellow filter for a couple minutes a day. And the next time I saw them, about 
seven to 10 days later, they had made a marked improvement. When I say a marked improvement, initially you would say they were legally blind. They could only see like the big E on the chart. And they went down to just about 2020, just from looking through a yellow filter. Now, I had no idea what had occurred, but that's what triggered my first interest in light. And then in 1974 or 75, I attended a conference and the keynote speaker was a man named John Ott. And John Ott was one of the pioneers in the biological effects of light specifically how artificial lighting impacts us. And he did a lot of research on plants, on animals, and even on kids in school, and found this dramatic shift in their overall wellness, whether animals develop cancers, whether plants were able to develop fruit, bear fruit, grow properly, and so on, and how kids in a classroom were impacted by the overhead lighting, their learning ability, how many cavities they developed, things such as that. And I got very intrigued and I went up to him, we spoke, we became good friends. He became a mentor to me and in fact uh, wrote the, I believe the introduction or preface to Light Medicine of the Future. That's how I initially got involved in it. And then I had a miraculous healing of my eyesight in 1976 after wearing glasses nine and a half years. And so things started occurring in my life that just didn't fit the models that I was taught in school and didn't seem to fit anything that I had read. And yet these things actually occurred. To give you an example, The shift in my vision happened in 1976. That was about 46 years ago. My next birthday, I'll be 75. I've never had a pair of glasses on my face since that day. I have my eyes checked every year. I still see well at distance and even for reading. Well, things like that just don't happen very often. So when they happen, and you can verify that they have occurred, you can confirm them, it causes you to start looking. It inspired me as I'm sure you were inspired in the area of light for maybe different reasons, to start looking deeper. So these early experiences in my life allowed me to realize how little I knew and how many of the things that I what's taught were very important and they were theories. In other words, they were ideas about how things worked, but it's only when you have a direct experience of something occurring that is different from the theory that you realize that what you're looking for is truth beyond opinion. And so that is the initial inspiration foundation for a lot of the work that followed. And just so the audience knows, you are um, an optometrist by training. So you were working with eyes very intimately, trying to improve people's eyesight and whatnot. And you allude to this in in both books. And you have many 
amazing anecdotes like you, you've already told us about how you were able to, let's say, holistically or with alternative treatments, able to miraculously heal or improve people's visions, not just their literal vision, but like expand their views, both literally and metaphorically, I suppose. Yeah. Can you kind of walk down more of those anecdotes? Because I think it will be pun intended, eye-opening for the audience to hear more of these different treatments that you utilize, whether it was syntonics or a color homeopathy that you allude to in the books. Kind of give us a couple more of those uh, stories uh, for us, if you could. So this is a big answer. I know. <laughs> That's a big ask. <laughs> it's, it's a big ask. I'll give you a big answer. When my eyesight instantaneously shifted, when I say instantaneously, it occurred during a meditative experience without doing anything. And the without doing anything is critical here because as you know, everything that we find interesting, we all ask the same question, what do I have to do? So the first thing I'd like to begin is that doing actually interferes with what naturally occurs without doing anything. And that doesn't mean that we become couch potatoes. What I'm saying is that our physiological makeup, our neurological makeup, our humanity, a huge part of it is that it is self-activating and self-regulating. The system is designed to continually be guided by whatever is animating the movement of this universe <laughs> and then respond to that automatically. We think we have to think about things and that is what initiates our response to them. But the response is a reflex. It just occurs all by itself. It's like when the ball is being pitched to a baseball player and it's coming down 90 miles an hour, there's no time to think. However, this integration occurs, something within our system reflexively moves. And if there is congruity and coherence, the ball and the bat touch in such a way that with minimum strength and effort, the ball can go a very long distance. What I started seeing early in my career was that it was less about our doing and more about our seeing, that awareness was in fact curative, that it is those aha moments in our life that trigger a process of transformation. And that is the basis of what we call evolution. And so what I started seeing with a lot of my clients and patients back then is that, you know, we would have them do vision training, certain kinds of vision exercises, just like you might do in the physical therapy field. And all of these things were helpful, except the most helpful thing that I found is when things occurred without the person even knowing it. So what I began realizing is that we are all conditioned to think ahead. We are all conditioned to try hard. And we don't realize that that process actually interferes 
was entering that wonderful space that in sports they call the zone. You're in a place where you don't actually exist. You disappear and the process just takes over. It's what happens whenever you have a a masterful performance by an athlete or a dancer or whatever. And you say, how did you do that? And they all say, I don't know. Because they didn't actually do it. Something was moved through them. So the same, I'm not trying to be philosophical. What I'm saying is that is the foundation of what I discovered about helping people to uncover their maximum potential whether it was a shift in eyesight, a shift in athletic performance or classroom performance, a shift in their life, it really had to do with them discovering, does this process I've been indoctrinated and that I do unconsciously, is this actually the way things work? I guess what I'm saying is, we've all been led to believe that things work a certain way, Hardly any of us actually question it and put it to the test. Is that what actually happens? So to give you an example, I worked with thousands of kids back then that were diagnosed with all kinds of learning problems and so on. And they tried really hard, but they couldn't seem to to move forward. And so I developed uh, ways and experiences that would allow them to actually discover whether all the thinking or worrying, as I call it, that they did, was that actually leading them to success? And what they discovered in every case, and this is also the same for trying to see clearer, is the more they tried, the worse it got. It was only when miraculously something in the system went, ah, and just relaxed, that all of a sudden, eyesight cleared up, the answer they're looking for came free of charge, and all of a sudden, it was like, oh my God, that was a miracle. What I discovered with my work with seeing, for instance, is that the process of gradually people becoming less and less dependent on their glasses had a lot to do with me sharing with them my own experience. Because when one person has done it, it leaves the door open for another person to do it. And so sharing my own experience as a possibility opened the door. And then many different techniques and ways to allow the person to uncover something that they had not seen before. And color is a big part of this because light is invisible. We experience brightness, but we don't experience light itself. Color is something that is created through the integration of the energy or the vibration that we call light the visual apparatus, perceptual apparatus that we have, whether we're a human being or a snake, and then something called consciousness, which few people have any real grasp of. And somewhere in that mystery, we have an experience. And so what I discovered with color is initially 
I would use it like a cookbook. This did this and this did this. And it seemed to work until it didn't. And then I started to question, you know, why did they say that red is very excitatory? Some people it excited, but others it sedated and others just became very upset. So what I started realizing is that every person responded to a color in a different way, meaning that the color didn't have an intrinsic effect. Their relationship with the color is what triggered something. Sort of like you mentioned your wife being bored on a, in, in Hawaii on the, on the island of Oahu. You fell in love with her. You don't even know how that happened, but the two of you fell in love. If your 10 best friends were sitting next to you looking at your lovely wife, would they all fall in love with her? Let's hope not. Right. <laughs> for, for my right. own sake. Okay, but you, but but you know yeah, yeah. that they would all have a different response to her, yeah? Correct, yep. Well, would you say some of them are right and some of them are wrong? No, it's just we respond differently. It doesn't have anything to do with a choice. It has to do with whether we are in resonance or not with something. So when people experience color, they either experience a resonance with it, so they feel at ease, or they experience something that is almost like a little protective response. And what I discovered is that the energy that comprises what we experience as color is the same energy that comprises what we experience as an experience. So if we've had an experience that has left us with bad feelings, you will find a specific color has that same vibrational makeup. And when the person looks at it, they'll have the same kind of ill feelings. And so why is that important? And why am I talking about that? Because vision issues, like almost all other issues, are to a high degree caused by or significantly contributed to by what we call stress. And what is stress? Stress is when we have an allergic reaction to some aspect of life. We encounter something and we just don't see eye to eye with it. How does our life change? By gradually becoming comfortable with what used to feel uncomfortable. Because what feels uncomfortable is what we recoil from, what we have a stress reaction to, what the mind becomes very active to. So if we're gradually able to desensitize from the habitual psycho-emotional triggers we have, then the physical reactions, such as a constriction of our eyesight or a constriction of our body, or constriction of our perceptual ability to learn or our field of vision so that we don't see where the ball is in relation to us, if in some way we become more accepting of what used to feel unacceptable, then what's triggering the cascade that we call stress or dis-ease, which eventually can become disease, doesn't occur. So my entire approach, whether 
I'm helping people with eyesight or with issues you would call insight or with issues having to do with relationships or learning or anything else, that is a very, very big part of it. And so even though I've looked at many aspects of light and one of the most current aspects is what you're enjoying, which is photobiomodulation. The work that I'm incredibly intrigued by is the way light and specifically what we call color impacts us on a level below the conscious mind. It's exceedingly deep and can literally trigger a shift in our lives. When I say a shift in our lives, I don't mean you have to do something over and over and over again as we think change occurs. I mean, it can create epiphanies that really create an opening for people. So for me, to use the pun, my work is about helping people to see the light. And there are many people that their eyesight has improved, they've eliminated the need for glasses, their lives in general are working better. I have been out of practice in the optometric and vision science field, which is what I have degrees in. I've been out of that for 36 years. My work isn't working with patients on that any longer. The bulk of my work now is that I mentor a very small number of clients where I share these approaches to improve the quality of their lives. What do I mean? Every human being wants the same thing. We call it health and happiness. We would like to feel as good as we can. And if possible, we would like to be content with our lives. All of us are going to experience stress. No one feels good when their lover leaves them or when they have a breakup or when they lose money or when they get a diagnosis they didn't expect. Nobody's immune from that. Those are the real stresses of life. But so much of what of the stress we have is something that occurs because reality is incongruent with mentality. Our ideas don't fit what actually goes on. And so for me, life is what's really of interest to me, helping people improve the quality of their lives. And light vision and consciousness are the mediums through which I try to support people in opening up some aspect of their being that may have just been dormant for a while. That brings up a lot of <laughs> a lot of questions. That was a very uh, comprehensive answer. Like you said, a big answer for a big question. And I feel like a lot of my questions are going to be big just because the answers are so expansive and large because uh, the concepts are. And so where should we go from here? I mean, you already touched upon this, but let's go back to the concept of being present or having presence. Because I, like you said in the book, I think it's Luminous Life especially, our construct or how we have been brought up to think about presence is that we need to quiet our mind and think of nothing. Or like, like you said, try hard to quiet the mind and be still or whatnot. But from your experience, your expertise, your knowledge, what truly is being present? What is presence? 
Because like you said, the harder we try, the less we see. And by looking less, we see more. So with all that being said, kind of describe again, what is presence? And then how can one hone that? Because it's kind of a paradox where we all want it. So we try harder, yet that makes it elude us even more. So kind of walk us through presence. You use the word being present, which means that presence has to do with being not doing presence. Presence is everything that exists. There is no time when we are not present. Presence always is to whatever degree it is. Presence is a natural phenomenon where the energy we call light, which is invisible, catches the eye. So we often say, it caught my eye. What was the it? The reason we say it is because we don't know what the it is. What is the it? The it is light. But light is invisible. You cannot really describe light in the way you describe a cup of water. Physicists say that light is the energy which is the ground of reality. In other words, life emerges from this energy we called light. The renowned quantum physicist who passed away, David Bohm, David Bohm was Einstein's spiritual son. He would say all matter is frozen light. In other words, Light exists as formless and form. Einstein said the same thing in the the famous equation, E equals mc squared. Energy can be in form or in a formless state, can literally move back and forth. On a religious basis, the Bible says, let there be light. And then it says, on the fourth day, God created the sun, moon, and the stars. It sounds to me like two different kinds of light. The light of creation, and then the light that we perceptually experience from the sun, the moon, and the stars. So presence is this invisible source that the Bible says God is light that physicists say is the ground of reality, that spiritualists call the essence of consciousness. So light is the foundation for all that exists, and it is totally invisible and incomprehensible. It catches the eye. What does that mean? It is looking for us. Just think of that. We think we have to look for things and make things happen. Here, Light catches our eye. It isn't that our eye catches the light. So when people say it caught my eye, why did it catch my eye? Because the moment the light triggers the eye, and by the way, it does that by touching a single photon, just one photon, the eye automatically moves toward the light that has caught it. It moves that way, the body reorients itself, 
that essentially guides us to the next aspect of our life experience that is calling our attention. That moment of inseparable connectedness between that which has called us and the response which occurs reflexively, there's no doing in it, that is presence. That is congruity, that is coherence, and that is what guides us through our life. Something keeps catching our eyes. So I always say what catches your eye is looking for you. What's looking for you is your responsibility. You naturally respond to it. And that is what takes you from one place to the next. And you say, what? And I say, we're all being guided. It's not just, you know, I live in Hawaii. Every year, thousands of whales make a lengthy journey from Alaska to Hawaii. It's a 10,000 mile journey. And regardless of weather conditions, currents, no matter what, and these whales do not have their iPhones with a GPS. They're not members of AAA where they can get a map. And yet their journeys never vary more than one degree. What keeps them on track? What keeps birds on track when they're migrating for thousands of miles? What causes animals to sense a tsunami days before our technology even senses anything is happening and causes them to gradually go up to higher ground where they are safe. What is that? That sixth sense humans also have. What I'm in fact saying is that all living things are guided a tree doesn't have to think about how to grow. Its roots stabilize it, and the light guides it upwards toward the light. All plants literally align themselves as the sun rises to receive the nutrients, the guidance from the light. We are designed exactly the same way but we've become an indoor culture. We're living inside under artificial lights instead of under natural light, which is guiding us. Every physiological function is light dependent. What you call your intuition is not a feeling. It is light, which is invisible, interacting with the 100 trillion cells in your body guiding their activity so that a minute or two minutes or four months later, when something shifts in the environment, we are there to meet it. This is why, for instance, I used to live in Colorado, and in the summer, you might see a deer in the woods, and it has a short little coat because the weather is warm, and then as the season begins to shift, the light changes along with it. Every instance of every day, the changes in light are triggering a gradual change in the physiological function of that creature so that 
when winter comes, they don't say, oh, I forgot to buy my overcoat. They meet winter and are fully prepared for it. Most of us are constantly stressed because we feel unprepared. Why are we unprepared? We live normal lives, which are totally unnatural. Our health and wellness is a function of being in harmonious relationship with Mother Nature. Light is the most powerful environmental factor that brings that congruence and coherence, that relationship into the now. Presence is the means by which light guides us so that we're at oneness with the cosmos. Presence is not just some new agey term. Oh, you need to be more present. Presence is really what allows us to live in the zone, not just be there occasionally, but to actually have a life that is flowing a good amount of the time. How do we get there? Well, the fact that you're asking the question means you're already moving in that direction because the question is already coming from place inside that is inspired, was inspired to look for something. This guidance that I've been talking about is what triggers the process of inspiration. You obviously are very involved with light, certain aspects of light. And you said that uh, Jack Cruz was a mentor for you. He suggested you read certain things. You grab my book among others and something inspired you. And that inspiration caused an excitement in you. That excitement is called life. And that excitement implemented you going wherever you needed to go to find this, whatever this is that you're inspired about. That's the way our life works. Inspiration is what points us in a certain direction. And that occurs through the process I just described of presence. We say being at the right place at the right time. That's called congruence and coherence. That's the way Mother Nature works. The inspiration is what triggers the mind to get excited about something. When that occurs, the mind doesn't worry. It's just excited. When inspiration is not there, people say, well, just do it. No pain, no gain. Just make it happen. All of that trying and doing is coming not from inspiration, but from desperation. And that hits a brick wall. Let me say it in a different way. What we call our intuition, which I will call guidance, which is not from the conscious mind, it's from the animating force of the universe, whatever that is, whether you call it the Big Bang or God, it doesn't have a name. We don't know what that is, but it comes from there. That's what gets the ball rolling in all directions. Pure guidance or intuition is 100% accurate. Let me repeat that again. That guidance is 100% accurate and requires no effort. It defines economy. You invest nothing, you receive everything. 
we have been trained to live in a totally different way. We have been trained not that we are inspired by an animating force, which we are totally unaware of. We have been trained to believe that we are in charge of the universe, that we make things happen, that we make discoveries, that which is called the ego. But we forget something. Do you realize that what you think is going to happen almost never occurs? That's a scientific fact. Do you realize the word, the expression, I think, means I don't know? Do you realize that the word belief, very common today, I believe in this. You need to change your beliefs. All of these things we hear, but no one has bothered to look at the fact that the word belief means the opposite of truth, which means all of our ideas are not truth. So my interest is truth beyond opinion. What I'm interested in is not so much trying to understand it, because understanding is continually changing, but just having the experience. Like for instance, I was sitting with my daughter yesterday. We worked together. We were just having a creative session outside at a restaurant. She was typing and things were just streaming through. It was just coming out of nowhere. And she said to me, well, dad, what do you wanna do with this information? Do you wanna make it an article, a book or whatever? I said, I have no idea. I am just bathing in the miraculousness of, oh my God, how does this happen? All this stuff just comes from where I have no idea. It is that state of awe, that state of realizing that the mind doesn't know that leads one on that path that you are moving toward. You see, you probably got into the field of light because you, you read that photobiomodulation does this and does this, and it increases ATP and nitric oxide and all these things, and it has these effects, and you heal faster, and all of that is fantastic. But what's really fantastic about it is this is going on all day long in Mother Nature, and we've forgotten about it. We take it for granted. We've become an indoor culture. So we have more disease than we've ever had. We're living longer, but not as happily. My work, like yours, is inspired. It's excited about something that I feel is important. And I, the reason I enjoy these conversations is the answer, as well as the questions, come from, I have no idea, and yet they're continually coming. These inspirations are continually coming. And so what I'm saying is you can live without thinking. You can live without worrying much of the time. And so none of us have this down. We're all works in progress. We're all in the same boat. Thank God we're in the same boat. But that's what's possible, is a, a more accepting, forgiving kind of life. This podcast was brought to you by the Longev Revive Cream. If you haven't heard of this cream before, go back and listen to the podcast interview with David Horanek, one of the people that helped create this amazing cream. 
The cream is specifically developed to enhance red light therapy treatment sessions, and not only that, but improve vibrational healing from the frequencies of full spectrum sunlight. The Revive includes special ingredients such as photodynamic amino acids, which helps convert UV light to red light. It increases production of this thing called fibronectin, which is said to be the holy grail of anti-aging. And then there's astaxanthin, which has been shown in clinical studies to increase skin moisture, moisture retention, and elasticity. There's turmeric, which contains an antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, and antimicrobial properties. There's copper peptides, which also has antioxidant, anti-inflammatory effects. C60 has high antioxidant power to prevent skin aging, 172 times more than vitamin C. And then there's also geranium rose, shungite, humic acids, and most of these ingredients are organic and they're all high, high quality. So if you want to check this cream out, go to longev.com, that's L-O-N-G-E-V-V.com, or you can also find it on biolite.shop, that's biolite.shop. I appreciate that response a lot, uh, Jacob, very comprehensive and eye-opening, profound as always. And I think that brings up a good segue into the law of attraction, uh, like you you speak about in, in Luminous Life here, your most recent book, the law of attraction which there's, there's been a decent amount of talk the last handful of years, you know, think about it, manifest it, you know, and you'll receive it, right? Or something along those lines. But like you say in your book, the law of attraction is more about what we emit is what we attract, but not necessarily what we want or desire, which has a lot of parallels with what you were just talking about as far as presence. And a lot of people are trying to force it. And there's there's a sensor or in uh, an aura of desperation versus inspiration, just like this law of attraction, if we're exuding this desperation, well, we're going to attract that back to us versus like you're saying, living inspired. If that's what you're going to emit into the universe or into into this world, you're going to attract that right back to you. So I would just love your perspective to further expand on, on that thought of the law of attraction. The law of attraction First of all, there is no law of attraction. It's a um, a new age term. It's in a very good marketing thing for me to uh, to tell you that I can show you how to get anything you want. You can have all the money you want. You never have to have relational issues. You don't ever get have to get sick again. That sounds interesting. But if you are short on money or if you're having relational issues or you occasionally get sick like every human being on the planet, then how did you create this reality? In other words, something's wrong with you. But I can give you the answer. Based on my 74 plus years of living, I have not found that to be the case. What I have found is that life provides what we need not necessarily what we want. And if it happens to provide something that is beautiful and exciting, it always happens by surprise. It's always a surprise, whether it's I won the lottery or I got a car accident. We don't expect any of it. It just occurs. And so the way I started looking at that was I started to notice that there was a relationship of the way people responded to color. And it was totally different than anything I'd ever read or anyone had ever told me. And so I started looking at 
what causes the kinds of relationships that we have to occur. And I started looking at the field of chemistry and specifically when, if for instance, let's say you found a, a rock outside and uh, it was an interesting looking rock, but you didn't know what it was. What are the minerals or elements in this rock? And so you take it to someone that specializes in that and they bring you into their laboratory and they put a fire underneath that rock and they heat it up until it gets red hot. That state is called incandescence. And when it's red hot, it starts giving off a glow. If you analyze that glow of energy that's coming off, and you do that through a process called a spectrographic analysis, it gives you a readout of the energetic fingerprint of that element. And those that energetic analysis, they're called Fraunhofer emission lines. In other words, what is the energy being emitted by this uh, element or compound when it is excited. That's interesting in and of itself because the same compound will always show you the same fingerprint of energy. That's how we identify what it is. If you take that rock while it's excited and giving off energy and you put it outside, in an environment of sunlight, which contains all the energies in the electromagnetic spectrum, you notice that that element will attract to itself a precise mirror image of the energy it is giving off. So the Fraunhofer emission lines attract an identical set of Fraunhofer absorption lines. Now, when I saw that, I said, wow, an element in an excited state gives off, has an aura or a biofield that is measurable that attracts to itself something identical to it. When you look at the, the body, 99.9999999% of the body is just minerals. Those minerals are all are in an excited state. We call that excited state life. And we live in a place called the solar system, a place that is made of and nourished by light. When we're in the light, in an excited state, we're giving off this glow. And what we're attracting to ourselves here a mirror image of that. So I call that human homeopathy. Each of our experiences with another mirrors to us something of what we bring to it, not because we're doing anything wrong, but because awareness is curative. So when we have an experience, we can grow from that experience, and that growth is called evolution. For me, this attractive quality uh, 
that we see um, is not necessarily that positive attracts negative. At a very deep level, a quantum level, the same things attract to each other. And so there's something from that that we can learn a great deal about. So for me, this attractive quality or what you call the law of attraction is not about something you do to get what you want. It's our state of being that attracts to it what we need so that our system expands. In other words, it's not that the experiences are good or bad. It is that each of them is designed to help something expand. And this is why probably in ancient Chinese, the word crisis and the word opportunity are the same word. Another great response, Jacob. I appreciate it. And I don't know if this would be in the realms of being too redundant or not, but I think another good topic in your book that I was really attracted to in Luminous Life was awareness or having pure awareness, because kind of like presence or being present, we have kind of a misconstrued view or concept of of what it really is, I, I believe. And so again, if this is redundant, let me know, but can you explain to the audience what is truly awareness or pure awareness? And then can you speak on your practice of open focus that you spoke about in the book? Open focus is the process of looking at nothing. So imagine you could call it staring off into space, but imagine if you're just in a state of awareness, you're not focused on anything. When you're not focused on anything, you're open to everything. When you're focused on one thing, it excludes other things around it so that you can attend. So open focus is a way of allowing yourself to see more. And how is that practiced or done? What I notice is I would take a walk and rather than imagining that seeing is happening from the eyes, I would imagine that whatever is seeing is somewhere behind and above my head, outside the physical machine, separate from the physical machine. And when I was able to imagine that the seeing was happening out there, I noticed my whole body relaxed, my field of vision expanded, both laterally and on the z-axis. So things, it became like a wide-angle telescopic lens. My breathing expanded, and I was in a state of meditation with my eyes open. And so for many years, I did that while driving, while walking, and so on. And it assisted me in accessing a state of no mind. So now let's go to pure awareness. And what exactly does that mean? When people speak of consciousness, they think it's the mind. So they say, you need to be more conscious. My consciousness is, there is no my consciousness. 
there is an ocean of energy, call it pure awareness, that we call consciousness. And it's like this. Each of us see ourselves as individuals, like individual droplets of water. What happens when that drop falls into the lake or the ocean? It disappears. And what exists is something that is infinite, boundless, boundaryless. That's what consciousness is. So when people say, oh, he or she is enlightened, it means that they've had that experience of the drop falling into the ocean and are no longer seeing through the eyes of the individual whatever is seeing, which is not me or you, you could say is seeing through the eyes of God. It's pure awareness with no point of view. So let's take that philosophical construct and now bring it into reality. Everyone is aware when worry is going on. So they know that what they call their mind is worried. Who is the they that is noticing that the mind is worrying? That's a very important piece. See, most of us, you know, we call it mind-body medicine. Why? What's going on in the mind that we identify with is mimicked biologically. But what happens if you are not identified with it? In other words, what happens if you are identified not with the continual changing things in the mind, but you are identified with that which is noticing this activity in the mind? See, that place that notices is pure noticing pure witnessing, pure awareness, pure consciousness. It doesn't have any desire. It doesn't want life to be this way or this way. It's a state of unconditional acceptance and oneness. Non-duality is another term for it. That state, is that is pure awareness. And it's something everyone can access. Just, if you just consider what I said, all of us are aware a good bit of the time that that's, there's activity going on in the mind. We think that we came up with it. We didn't. It's just streaming up all the time and it catches our attention and we interact with it. But we are not the thinker of the thoughts. The thoughts are just streaming up all the time. What are those thoughts? They are the compensations for all the conditioning that has occurred in our lineage throughout history. Everything that goes through the mind is a sort of worry of trying to figure something out so that the thing you're most afraid of, you'll get through. 
so you'll look well. What do I have to do to get the job, to, to make an A on the test? Uh, uh, what do I have to do to practice my presentation so I don't forget anything? All of that stuff is what we do to create a certain persona in the world. What is the persona? The persona is that which we hope will keep us out of trouble. It's what's accepted by the culture. When you begin to realize that all that activity is going on because something is noticing it, all of a sudden you become intrigued. Wow, it doesn't stop at the mind. There's something behind, like an open focus, behind that is noticing everything. What's occurring in the external world? What's occurring on a feeling sense somatically? And what's occurring in that place we call mind, which we mistakenly call my mind? It's not my mind, it's the mind. So the first thing we have to do is realize that it's going on by itself. It's not mine. I didn't create it. It's just there. It's not me. See, when I call it mine, I say it's me. It's my mind. I can change my mind. I don't mind it. All these different expressions. It's none of that. What you notice in the mind are all the habitual things we all do to try to get it right. It's the thinking ahead. It's the worrying. When you begin to notice that, and when you begin to notice that something is noticing it, is when you become aware of that state of awareness. For instance, a couple of days ago, something happened, and I expected that I would get an email about it. And so yesterday I was out with my daughter having a creative session and she said she needed to go to the bathroom and I grabbed my phone and I checked my email. And all of a sudden something started laughing inside because I, the real I, was aware of what this, the mind-body, was doing in a state of worry in hopes that this thing it was expecting would occur. And I started laughing, one, at the awareness of what this body does automatically and habitually, and also laughing because it was obvious things never occur when we want them to. They just occur by surprise. And so the laughter was a, an instance of, oh, just a reminder again of what's actually going on all the time, rather than the illusion that most of us are living in, not because there's something wrong with us, but because we've been conditioned to do that. I'll give you a, a, a perfect example. 
uh, a psychologist a long time ago named Pavlov did these interesting experiments. He had a group of dogs and every time he would give them, he would ring a bell, he would give them food. Of course, the food was there, they began to salivate. Then one day he rang the bell but brought no food and the dogs all salivated anyway. That's called a conditioned response. So a baby is born and it is totally natural and acceptable initially in the early days of a baby's life that it is fed, maybe it's nursed by its mother or it's given some baby food. And then the food goes through the body and the baby may have to urinate or may have to have a bowel movement. And it's perfectly acceptable until we get to a certain point where the culture says, no, no, it's not acceptable. Now they have to be toilet trained. So you could see that the baby is maybe about to do something and you say, no, 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 hold on. Mommy will take you to the toilet. And the raising of the energy coming from mommy or daddy or the caregiver at that moment shocks the baby. And the shock causes it to go into contraction. It learns how to interfere with a natural involuntary function. So that becomes half of it. Then that continues for a while. And then when the baby is old enough and so on, we say to the baby, go to the bathroom and, and make because daddy and I are going to go on a trip. And once we get driving, we can't stop. So first we teach it to control its bowels by holding, and then we teach it how to push through what isn't happening to force it. So we're that's the way all conditioning is. We're trained to, to push or to pull. Our whole life is pushing or pulling to try to behave in a way that will be acceptable to the outside world. That's what happens in the mind. That is what creates stress to a large degree. Pure awareness are the eyes that notice that process. And when you begin to notice the process, ding, a light goes on. Why? because most of us are concerned about our behavior in the world. Few of us notice the rehearsal that occurs before the behavior. This awareness notices the rehearsal. What is powerful about that? I'll give you an example. Imagine you're in a classroom at school, the teacher is writing something on the whiteboard or projecting something on, on the front uh, uh, monitor. And the kids in the back of the room, while the teacher isn't looking, are throwing paper wads. The teacher gets a sense of something and turns around. And the moment she turns around, the paper wads stop. Awareness is curative. That's what happens when all of a sudden we discover that our true essence are the eyes that notice what's happening all over the 
everywhere, including the mind. Now we see the sneaky internal rehearsal that we all do to try to get it our way. And the moment we see it, something begins to dissolve about it. That's why I say awareness is curative. The seeing of it interrupts that habitual, previously secretive process that goes on that we call anxiety and worry. In essence, metacognition, thinking about thinking, but in this instance, you're thinking about or being aware of this rambling process that's going on in your head and having that awareness or metacognition, you're able, like you're saying, to kind of help dissolve that. And if you're able to do that on a consistent basis, become more aware on a more consistent basis, which ultimately will hopefully decrease stress, which in the body, in the mind, in the eyes, allows things to open and move freely and so on and so forth. Is that kind of the general synopsis? No. Okay. <laughs> I figured as much. Wow. But I'll tell you why the no. Okay. <clears throat> what you've said is exactly correct. But there's no way to say it clearly. So we use the mind to try to explain it. It's sort of like, trying to explain three-dimensionality with a two-dimensional tool. There's no way to explain it. It isn't thinking about thinking. Awareness has no thoughts. It's absent. Thoughts are theories. They're ideas about things. Awareness is pure seeing, pure clarity. I see means I know. The seeing is happening from not us. It's happening from that ocean of awareness that sees everything, knows everything, is everywhere. It's the way we try to describe this unknown animating force by saying it's God or it's the Big Bang or whatever you want to call it. Awareness is our true essence, when we uncover it, when we all of a sudden come into contact with it, we disappear. When pure awareness is happening, there's no me there. There's just pure awareness. And the pure awareness does nothing but see. But seeing is profound. It's absolutely profound. Seeing or awareness is what causes something to begin to move in a different direction. You know the term neuroplasticity, essentially saying that our system can change throughout our lifetime as long as there isn't too much stress associated with it. Most concepts of neuroplasticity are based on an antiquated model. If you do this over and over and over and over again, your neuronal system will develop new byways and streets to do that. And that's, that's true. 
except those streets only remain as long as you keep doing that over and over and over and over again, which you know nobody does. So I believe you're a physical therapist, yes? Correct. Right. So someone comes to you and you give them some corrective exercises, yeah? And they all do it for a few days. So they keep coming back to you and you keep reminding them. And the same thing happens. We just do it for a very limited time unless it's something that's natural for us. How does neuroplasticity really occur? They have an epiphany. They have a revelation. You are working with them and something gets better or something feels better. And all of a sudden they know or have come in contact with something that was unknown or invisible before. When we uncover this, this state of awareness, pure awareness, it is the most profound epiphany of a lifetime. It's like you realize that what we call God is not out there. It's that thing that is seeing everything all the time. And that's not us. It's something that's common to all of us. That's why the biblical writing, which is probably more of a story, but it says God created humans in God's image, which means that all of life is pure awareness, pure consciousness. And that is one of the most accepted theories of what consciousness is right now, is that consciousness is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. And that's exactly what quantum mechanics shows us. There's no time. There's no space. Everything is aware of everything else all the time. This is a very deep discussion. And it's difficult to just say, well, do I do this? Do I do this? It's not about any doing. It's about some part of us that says, oh my God, wow, I never considered that. That is what starts the process of neuroplasticity, the triggering of an aha moment, which is why we're having this conversation. Just to backtrack, Jacob, I'm, I'm not trying to find a verbal, um, like you said, it is, you can't really explain it in words, but was I partially incorrect with my metacognition because metacognition is an active choice we're making, whereas like you're saying, we can't force it, we can't make it happen. It just happens to us regardless of our choice. It's more of a lack of choice. It sounds like things happen or... Choice is an illusion. Right, right. Let me repeat that again. If you do MRIs with the most sophisticated units in the world and you set up an experimental design where a person has to, quote, make a choice, you discover something very, very profound, whether it's a simple 
yes or no answer or something more complex, your system comes up with the solution way before there is any conscious awareness. And even the MRI research, which is gold standard research that has been done, is not accurate because I can tell you that I've had direct experiences of things occurring in a dream state a year before they actually occurred. And what I shared when they occurred the following morning after that dream state, I shared that with someone and they knew exactly what happened. And a year later, exactly that happened. Now that has nothing to do with me. That has to do with the mystery of this and the fact that we're trying to describe it with our little conceptual mind. And it's almost, it's too big on some level. I really, really am grateful for your time and, and your uh, knowledge and sharing with, with the audience. So just, just lastly, where can people go to learn more about you, more from you uh, and the books you have? They can go to our website, jacoblieberman.org. Our website is not a marketing site. We're not giving away anything in hopes you sign up. It's nothing to do with that. We don't have any interest in that. We just want to share something that is beneficial. People can follow us on Facebook or on Instagram. And basically, we just put out things that we think are helpful for people. My work directly is that I mentor a very small number of individuals or couples that need some support with some part of their life that is difficult. And if I can help them, that becomes a wonderful match made in heaven. The approach I used of using color that's incorporated into my mentoring work. People can also get a kit that allows them to play with that at home and see quite beneficial results. That's called the spectral receptivity system. But other than that, that's about as, as much as, as we offer. Yeah. Or people can go to Google or whatever, uh, uh, YouTube, uh, along with the millions of others. Yeah. Just to clarify, Jacob, I know you take a small amount of people, but if people are interested, is it going to the jacoblieberman.org website to connect yes. with you? Yes. Okay. Yes. Wonderful. My next client is waiting for me on Zoom. Yep. So I've got to run, but I am eternally grateful for the time we've taken today. I appreciate you. I appreciate your inspiration and what you're doing. And you and your wife are both very fortunate. Thanks, Jacob. each other. Yes. Nothing but gratitude for having you on in your time. I'll, I'll let you go and uh, we'll definitely have to do this again. But thanks again, have Jacob. Have a blessed day. All right. Likewise. Take care. You will. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Red Light Report. If you like what you heard today, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes and other podcast platforms to help spread the word so other people can learn about the many health, wellness, and longevity benefits of red light therapy. If you're looking for more educational content, check out our Instagram page at biolight.shop and our YouTube channel, Biolite. I'm Dr. Mike Belkowski, and I'll see you on the next episode.